Prologue in Chapters 1 through 3 of The Wonder Worker of Padua. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wonder Worker of Padua by Charles Warren Stoddard. Prologue The Five Friars. The afternoon shadows were lengthening under the walls of the monastery of Santa Cruz, a house of the canons regular of St. Augustine at Coimbra. Life within that holy house stole on as slowly, as regularly, and for the most part as silently, as those deepening shadows. Each morning it was renewed as cheerfully as broke the dawn upon the waves that washed the shores of Portugal. Each noon it was radiant with the fullness of spiritual joy. Each evening it hushed itself to rest with prayer and praise. And these three epochs in the daily life of the cloister were heralded by the mellow peal of the Angelus as it was wafted over the embosoming hills and throbbed into silence in far-off fainting echoes. Now and again something occurred in the monastery something slight in itself but enough to break in upon the peaceful current of events and create an interest or excitement that fairly startled the gentle occupants there were guests from time to time quite a number of them for the worldly are ever curious concerning the inner life of those who though in the world are not of it therefore there was a guest master at santa cruz as there is always a guest master in every monastery and his office it is to receive those who desire to see the chapels the relics the cloisters it is the duty and the pleasure of this guest master to conduct visitors through the monastery and to entertain them and thus relieve the friars from all distractions such as sudden and unexpected calls from prayer or labor one day at Santa Cruz, five stranger guests arrived, three priests and two lay brothers, disciples of St. Francis, whose order was then but ten years old. These friars had been assigned to the mission in Morocco, and were on their way thither when they sought the hospitality of the Abbey of Santa Cruz. Who shall say that it was chance alone that brought them thither? They were Franciscans not far distant from coimbra the pious queen of portugal had established the convent of st anthony of olivares it was situated in an olive grove whence it derived its name the house was small and poor but it was large enough to shelter the five friars and the brother questor whose duty it was to ask alms for the needs of the brethren would have gladly shared his frugal fare with these apostles who were on their way to martyrdom in Morocco. But they passed Olivares and sought the gates of Santa Cruz and were there given heartfelt welcome. Was it for this reason that, as the Franciscan chronicles tell us, Queen Uraca sent for and lovingly received the friars? For indeed she held their order in great esteem and inquired many things concerning their errand, most courteously offering to supply all their wants. Not content with the brief account of their general's intention which they gave her, this lady, thirsting as the heart for the word of God, 
engaged them in spiritual discourse, drawing thence much sweetness and consolation. Then, taking them apart, she besought them, for the love of him, for whose sweet name they were going to torments and death, to beg of Almighty God to reveal to them the day on which she should die. And, albeit the friars endeavored by all means to escape her importunity, saying that they were most unworthy to know the secrets of the Lord, and other words of like import, yet did she at length prevail with them to give her that promise which she craved. And so, after fervent prayer, they again came before the queen and bade her be of good courage, for that it was the will of God that her end should be very shortly, and before that of the king, her husband. Moreover, they gave her a sure sign, for no lady, they said, that before many days we shall die by the sword for the faith of Christ. Praised be his divine majesty, who has chosen us poor men to be in the number of his martyrs. Our bodies shall be brought unto this city with great devotion by the Christians of Morocco, and you and your husband shall go to meet them. When these things shall come to pass, know that the time is come for you to leave this world and go to God. The guest master of Santa Cruz was a youth of four and twenty, who was already ordained. He had a marvelously beautiful countenance, and was singularly engaging in manner. Naturally, he was thrown much in the society of the friars, and often conversed with them of the extraordinary history of Portiuncula and of the miracles wrought by the seraphic father, St. Francis of Assisi. Certain it is that the five friars perished in their blood at the hands of the infidels. Their bodies were brought home in solemn state, attended by various supernatural manifestations calculated to inspire reverence and awe. It was the king's wish that these relics of the first Franciscan martyrs should rest in the principal church of the capital, but they were mysteriously guided or conveyed to the monastery of Santa Cruz, where they had lodged, and where his majesty had a superb chapel erected, in which the relics were reposited. Many marvels were witnessed at that shrine, and these deeply touched the heart and the spirit of the young guest-master. But a few months before he had held converse with these very friars, who were then joyously seeking the palm and the crown of martyrdom, now they were in paradise, and he was kneeling beside their holy dust, a poor friar groping blindly after that light that should illumine him and make clear his path of life. One day, kneeling at that tomb, his heart aflame with love and veneration, from the depths of his soul he cried out, Oh, that the Most High would grant me to be associated with them in their glorious sufferings, that to me also it were given to be persecuted for the faith, to bear my neck to the executioners. Will that blessed day ever dawn for thee, Fernando? Will such happiness ever be thine? Thus through chaste communion with the five friars, call it not chance that brought their hearts together, through the sufferings, by the sacrifice, and at the tomb of the five martyrs, did Fernando de Bouillon 
find his vocation. Chapter 1. Fernando the Novice Who was Fernando de Bouillon? He was the son of Martino de Bouillon and Teresa Taverna, his wife, who were of ancient lineage and noble birth. Don Martino descended from the illustrious Godfrey de Bouillon, who led the first crusade and was the first Frankish king of Jerusalem. He was the grandson of Vincenzo de Bouillon, who followed King Alfonso I in his campaign against the Moors, and who, in acknowledgment of his deeds of valor, was made governor of Lisbon. This office became hereditary in the family of de Bouillon, and Fernando, as first son of the house, was heir to it and Dona Teresa was hardly less illustrious. Her ancestors had reigned over the Asturias in the 8th century until the invasion by the Saracens. Don Martino and Dona Teresa occupied a sumptuous palace close to the Cathedral of Lisbon. Here Fernando was born on the 15th of August, 1195. Eight days after his birth, he was carried with great pomp to the cathedral and there received in baptism the name of Fernando. Though nothing of a prophetic nature preceded the birth of Fernando, it was soon evident that he was no ordinary child. Born on the Feast of the Assumption, it was at the shrine of Our Lady del Pilar he received the grace of baptism. To the Blessed Virgin his mother consecrated the babe when returning from the baptismal font, Maria was the first name he learned to utter, and the hymn he heard oftenest from his mother's lips was O Gloriosa Domina. As a child, the sight of an image or a painting of the Madonna would change his tears to smiles. As a religious, he placed himself under the special protection of the Blessed Virgin. As an apostle, he was her champion, ever sounding her praises, ever ready to do battle in her cause. At the age of ten, beautiful in form and feature, with an inner spiritual beauty that gave his face an almost angelic expression, possessed of a sweet and gladsome nature, a quick intelligence, and a lively imagination, he had already shown a preference for the secluded paths of a religious life. During the five years of his infancy, Fernando attended the cathedral school in Lisbon, clothed in the garb of a cleric. He was a pattern of all the proprieties. In this exquisitely refined child, virtue blossomed like a flower and breathed forth a delicate fragrance that all who approached him became conscious of. It was now he gave the first manifestation of that power which, through him, was to work wonders so long as he lived, wonders that have never ceased and are never to cease in this ever-wandering world. Kneeling one day at the shrine of Our Lady in the cathedral, his eyes on the tabernacle wherein the Blessed Sacrament was veiled, a demon, one of those baleful spirits that still tempt and delude the unwary, appeared before him. Startled as he was, with the pious instinct of nature, he traced upon the marble step where he was kneeling the sign of the cross. The vision vanished, 
but to this hour is seen that sacred symbol indelibly impressed upon the marble. In that hour, Fernando's fate was sealed. With everything to make life alluring, youth, beauty, health, wealth, high birth and gentle breeding, devoted parents and idolizing friends, the child turned from them all. It was his destiny. Already able to meditate upon the foolish rewards of life and labors in the world and for the world alone, Fernando exclaimed, O world, how burdensome thou art become! Thy power is but that of a fragile reed, thy riches are as a puff of smoke, and thy pleasures like a treacherous rock whereon virtue is shipwrecked. He seems to have resolved on this occasion to enter the religious life, to turn from the luxurious delights that had never appealed to his nature, and accept poverty, humility, and obedience as his portion. This resolution once formed, nothing could cause him to reconsider it. At the gate of the Abbey of St. Vincent, he implored admission being attracted thither, as the chronicle quaintly records, by the renown for learning and holiness of its men. Surely nothing could have offered him a more pleasing prospect than the society of such as these. Nothing afforded him more perfect satisfaction. Chapter 2. Fernando the Scholastic What wonder that the child should have turned from the world in his fifteenth year, when most children at that stage of development find an indescribable joy in mere physical existence. From his earliest infancy, his life was an involuntary consecration. He was meekness, compassion, love personified. He had a special devotion to the impoverished and all those in sorrow and affliction. He was never known to utter a falsehood. All the offices of the church were dear to him. He never failed to hear Mass daily, and joyfully and most reverently to serve. Our Blessed Lady, pattern of purity, was his chosen patroness. For the amusements which were the delight of his companions, he cared nothing. The pleasures of life he never knew, and hoped never to know. He was the natural enemy of idleness, was instinctively studious, and of a sweet solemnity which did not oppress but rather edified his associates and endeared him to them. What wonder that he should turn from the madding crowd and seek the seclusion of a cloister. There was nothing unwholesome, nothing unnatural in his resolve to quit the world while yet a child in years. For a youth of his temperament, a temperament which was an angelic heritage, there is really but one step to be taken, firmly, but in all humility he took it. Without the walls of Lisbon stood the monastery of St. Vincent, a house of the canons regular of St. Augustine. Having obtained the leave of his parents, he went thither, and, casting himself at the feet of the prior, called by some Gonsalvo Mendez and by others Pelagius, he asked to be admitted to the Holy Brotherhood. Naturally edified by the gentle and reverent spirit of the youth who knelt before him, the prior received him with affectionate tenderness, 
and in due course of time he was clothed in the white robe of the order what happiness of heart was his what peace of spirit what serenity of soul alas they were short-lived his friends missing him sorely sought him at all seasons if he had before this been to them an engaging mystery a surprise by reason of his unlikeness to them and to any other whom they knew he was now clad in the pale robe of the augustinians their wonder and delight he drew them irresistibly to the monastery and their well-meant but ill-timed visitations were a distraction which he could not long endure two years were enough and more than enough to assure him that at st vincent's let him strive never so bravely against such a fate he was in danger of losing his vocation he must seek security in solitude in exile and that without delay if he would attain the perfection which was his aim in life it was in no bitterness of spirit no pride no impatience he turned from all who loved him most it was an honest and an earnest effort on his part to reach that state of grace for which his heart was hungering night and day at st vincent's he was neighbor to the world and the worldly life he cared not for he must fly hence at any cost to comfort temporal or spiritual he must steel his heart to the sweet assaults of earthly love for the unity peace and concord he sought found no abiding place under heaven save in cloistral seclusion the prior of st vincent's had during the two years of fernando's sojourn there beheld with joy the fervor of the youth and when that youth implored him to be allowed to depart into some other house of the order some house far removed from lisbon and the voices that were constantly crying to him to return to them again the prior was for a season loath to give him leave but as the old chronicler says having at length by tears and prayers obtained the consent of his superior he quitted not the army in which he was enlisted but the scene of combat not through caprice but in a transport of fervor chapter three fernando the augustinian canon nearly a hundred miles from lisbon stood the abbey of santa cruz it was lapped in the seclusion of coimbra it was far from the trials the temptations the tribulations of the workaday world it was the mother-house of the augustinians the head cradle of the order the sweet influences of the saintly theatin its first prior still perfumed it it was the centre and the source of all the noblest traditions of the tribe the inspiration of the clergy the consolation and the pride of the loyal and widely scattered brotherhood the abbey was a far-famed seat of learning there religion and letters went hand in hand don john and don raymond both doctors of the university of paris were among the scholars at santa cruz for a student for a religious for a recluse there was no retreat in portugal more desirable than this and thither fernando was sent 
His new brethren were not long in convincing themselves that Fernando's change of residence had not been made without reflection, and that the love of novelty had no share in his decision. He had, it is true, ardently longed for solitude and tranquility, but far from seeking therein a dispensation from the rigor of monastic life, he sought but a means to perfect himself in virtue. At Lisbon he had read the literature of pagan antiquity. At Santa Cruz he devoted himself to the study of theology, the fathers, history, religious controversy. Above all these, the sacred scriptures won his ardent attention. He was seventeen years of age when he entered Santa Cruz. He was completely detached from the world. Nature had in every way richly endowed him. His memory was prodigious. All knowledge came to him freely without effort, and once acquired it never left him more but beautifully adjusted and ready for instant use. It seemed literally at his tongue's end. Eight years he passed at Santa Cruz in obedience, in prayer, in study. He grew continually in virtue. He was virtue's self. Devoted to his books, he never permitted the study of them to interfere with the pious duties allotted him. On one occasion, being employed in some remote part of the abbey, he heard the note of the elevation bell. Turning toward the chapel, he prostrated himself and beheld the distant altar and the sacred host in the hands of the celebrant beheld them all as plainly as if the intervening walls had vanished away. Nor was this the only wonder he worked at Santa Cruz. While nursing one of the religious, the patient, a victim of obsession, became uncontrollable. Fernando, spreading the hem of his mantle over the sufferer, brought to him instant and permanent relief. His erudition grew to be the subject of general comment. He knew the Holy Bible by heart. He seemed to have taken the sense and the substance of it to his soul, so that it became a part of him. In one of his commentaries he wrote, O divine word, admirable word, that inebriatest and changest the heart, thou art the limpid source that refreshest the parched soul the ray of hope that givest comfort to the poor sinner, the faithful messenger that bringest glad tidings to us exiles of our heavenly country. He never forgot what he had once studied, though the time was to come when the calls upon him were so many and so various, he had no moment in which to read anything, save only his breviary. End of chapter 3